Big changes to America's policy toward Cuba, a big settlement over Surfside, and phase two starts in the death penalty trial of the Parkland shooter in Broward County. This is the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Tom Hudson. Immigration, remittances, travel, even private investment from the United States to Cuba. The Biden administration announced new practices toward Cuba. So how could it affect South Florida and what could be the impact on the island? There's a $1 billion settlement package taking shape for the victims of the Surfside condominium building collapse. Plus, a new stage in jury selection began this week to decide life or death for the Parkland shooter. It's all ahead on the South Florida Roundup here on WLRN, made possible by Willie the Bee Man, Bee Removal Specialist. Welcome to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Tom Hudson. Thanks for listening this week. On Monday, the Biden administration announced a lifting of some Trump-era sanctions placed on Cuba. It includes reviving the Cuban Family Reunification Parole Program and processing up to 20,000 immigration visas to the United States each year. Now, the State Department has said there are 22,000 applications that have not been acted upon in the past five years. Miami activist Nubis Robina says members of her family have been stuck in immigration limbo for nearly five years due to some of the policies that are now being reversed. Since 2017, they went on interviews, they got approved, they were waiting on their documents to travel, and all of a sudden everything got stopped and the documents are still stuck in Havana since 2017. Since then, until today, we didn't know anything about this program. We didn't know if it was going to be restarted. We didn't know if it was going to be, you know, taken away. So now we, we started to hear from this again. And that change in policy followed a decision by the U.S. Treasury Department to allow direct American investment in a private Cuban business. Now, that hasn't happened since the Castro Revolution began 63 years ago. John Kavalik heads the U.S. Cuba Trade and Economic Council in New York. His application to invest in a Cuba private enterprise was okayed. My thesis has always been the U.S. should be on the offensive and not give the Cuban government an excuse to say, well, you're not allowing it, so why should we? So now the U.S. has said, we're all in on this. Ball's in your court. Yeah, the ball is in the Cuban government's court. The Cuban government still has to allow that investment for it to happen. But many Cuban exile leaders say the president's approach is flawed. Orlando Gutierrez Boronat heads the assembly of the Cuban resistance. As long as the regime retains the kind of control it has, they will enrich themselves through those supposed independent businesses. So I think approaching the regime with a scalpel doesn't work. you got to hit them with a hammer. All of these changes come as today, Friday, is the 120th anniversary of Cuban independence. Now, all of this happening as well because not only the Cuban policy that the Biden administration made changes to this week, but on Tuesday, the White House also lifted some sanctions on Venezuela, allowing Chevron to talk with Venezuelan state-owned oil monopoly and negotiate potential future activities in that country. So what does the easing of the sanctions mean for America's relationship with these countries and here in South Florida? What have politicians and those in the diaspora said about the moves from the Biden administration? How do they impact your family, your business, your community? Join our conversation here on the South Florida Roundup today on WLRN. Here's our phone number, 800-743-WLRN, 800-743-9576. You can also share your thoughts on Twitter. We're at WLRN. WLRN's America's editor, Tim Padgett, is with us. So, Tim, uh, lots to get into here, but first describe the changes to Cuban immigration. 
Well, they're not so much changes as a resumption of policies that were effectively halted five years ago because of these alleged sonic attacks on the U- on U.S. embassy diplomats in Havana, as you'll recall. Mm-hmm. Now that the Biden administration feels it can start staffing the embassy again, it wants to resume uh, policies, mainly that family reunification program uh, that you mentioned, which allows uh, U.S. citizens to get family members from Cuba, uh, Cuban-Americans who are U.S. citizens, to get family members relocated here uh, in the U.S. Uh, so that and they can sort of uh, circumvent a lot of the immigration uh, visa requirements. Uh, and the second thing, the second most important thing is is ramping up the processing of those immigration visas in the U.S. Embassy. Yep. Yeah, accelerating that process, which we just heard has been on hold for five years. Five Thousands years. have been uh, backlogged. Is this the American response to the large increase in Cuban migrants on the U.S. southern border, as well as those that have been braving the Florida Straits? Most definitely, yes. Um, the, the Biden administration has really been thrown for a loop by this record wave of, of Cuban migrants coming not so much, you know, as, as is historically the case uh, by water arriving on our shores right. here in the Keys, but by land arriving by the tens of thousands, again, record wave at the U.S.'s southern border uh, with Mexico. What role, if any, in the U.S. reassessment of its Cuba policy did the street protests of last summer play? Well, I think it, I think it played a lot. I think anything the U.S. does right now uh, has a lot to do with those so-called Patria y Vida protests uh, that happened la- last July because it has raised the expectation uh, of, of people, not just here in the exile community, but also on the island, that the U.S. is going to get behind that movement and, and, and try to push the, the Cuban regime to make changes. Um, the, 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 the big uh, question, though, is what kind of change, what kind of policy does the U.S. undertake to start pushing yeah. the Cuban regime. The Trump administration's MO, of course, was t- retightening the mm-hmm. screws on the regime. Uh, the Biden administration showed this week that it would like to go somewhat in a limited fashion back to the Obama administration approach of engaging at least the island economically so that we can see private entrepreneurs and other Cubans get some more economic empowerment. Which leads us to the changes that the Biden administration announced regarding remittances back to the island. What were those? Well, we don't know if if the Biden administration wants to completely lift the ceiling that the Trump administration imposed on remittances, which was about $1,000 per quarter for Cubans here that they could send to families back on the island. But they do want to lift that ceiling that the Trump administration imposed. The main problem will be, at the same time, the Biden administration doesn't want any of that money to be touched by the military-led agency called Finsimex that takes a big cut mm-hmm. of that remittance cash when it goes into Cuba. So it is it, it, it seems to believe now that the Cuban government is poised to drop its insistence that Finsimex be the agency that handles that remittances, and maybe we'll say a non-military agency entity now do that. The other big thing, though, about the remittances policy is that the Biden administration said that it wants to get a lot more remittance cash to Afro-Cubans who for years have been left out of the remittance scene. Why identify that specific portion of the Cuban population? Because one of the big purposes of remittance cash, getting that flow of money into Cuba, is not just to help, you know, white 
relatively more affluent families in Cuba, but you want to get that cash into the total bloodstream of, of the Cuban population. And that, that includes Cuban Americans. I think the White House pointed out to us that only one in six Afro-Cubans on the island have access to remittances mm -hmm. from the U.S. So that sort of, that sort of nullifies the whole intent of, of what that money is supposed to do in terms of empowering ordinary Cubans so that they're not so reliant on the big brother Cuban communist state. Big changes announced by the Biden administration this week regarding its engagement with Cuba. 800-743-WLRN. This certainly has implications here in South Florida in our community, our families, businesses, cultural institutions. We want to hear from you. 800-743-9576. 800-743-WLRN as we're live here on this Friday afternoon on the South Florida Roundup. Luis Zuniga is with us now. Luis is a member of the Assembly of the Cuban Resistance. Luis, thanks for sharing some of your time with us here today. What's your reaction to the changes announced this week? Okay, thank you for the invitation and, uh, and a great greeting for all the, the audiences. Uh, well, indeed, uh, uh, some of the measures are understandable and others don't. Uh, the, the first one are the, about the issuance of uh, more visas because uh, thousands of Cubans have left uh, the island and have gone to the United States, so it's, it has over fulfilled the quota of 20,000 a year. Uh, besides, uh, that quota is, uh, is a privilege for Cubans. Uh, we don't understand uh, why, above other countries in Latin America, uh, why is Cuba preferred? And second, uh, the key issue that stop the, the, the working of uh, uh, immigration officers in Havana was the Havana syndrome mm -hmm. uh, that it has not been solved yet. As you know, uh, uh, tens of uh, U.S. diplomats uh, have been injured, severely injured by what happened in Havana that most experts, even uh, civilian universities in the U.S., have qualified as a sonic attack on the diplomats, specifically on U.S. diplomats. So it has not been solved. Uh, it's still on. And I think that uh, uh, as long as the Cuban regime does not cooperate uh, on the solving of this issue, uh, the, 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 the issuance of visa in Havana should not, uh, should not be uh, continued. Is there a solution to the wave of uh, Cubans leaving the island, heading to the United States, a natural destination that you would support? Oh, yes, indeed. Of course. Uh, listen, the last administration imposed uh, what the Cuban regime has qualified as the most dangerous and most damaging uh, uh, sanctions on Cuba. It's in the statement of the official statement of the Minister of Foreign Relations of Cuba uh, last weekend. And uh, at that time, there was no mass migration from Cuba. And did not happen. Then it came uh, the the mass uh, uh, protest in Havana nine months ago, mm -hmm. uh, when the Cuban people perceived that the U.S. government was, uh, if in fact, confronting the dictatorship. That the U.S. Uh, the U.S. was along with the Cuban people, supporting them, and they went out on the streets, uh, rallying on the streets, protesting. Listen, the Cuban people was hungry, but the Cuban people rallying on the street did not call for food. The Cuban people needed medicine and the people and the and the people on the rallies did not request it for medicine the Cuban people did not uh, requested visas or or exits uh, from Cuba they requested some some uh, something quite different freedom that's what they claim 
when the when the mass exodus came when the, the when the regime implemented terror measures in uh, incarcerating uh, our uh, our 1300 cubans in, including minors mm-hmm. and sentencing them to to 10 20 and even 30 years of prison just for protesting and what happened next was that the regime immediately wanted the pressure the inside pressure against the regime to exhaust and what they did well, they immediately called their friend in Nicaragua, uh, or, or right. Daniel Ortega, a communist, to immediately say that Cubans may may go to Nicaragua without a visa. Is there what the Cubans need to go to Nicaragua for? To to take a swimming in the uh, Lake Managua, Managua Lake? Of course not. <laughs> no. It was a plan. Right. It was a plan for Cubans to live directly in Central America. And when the Cubans uh, arrived in, in Managua Airport, there were hundreds of, of right. uh, mafia from Mexico offering them, taking them to the border of the United yeah. States yep. just for two, $3,000. So it was planned by the Cuban regime. Uh, and Luis, we, we saw the results, certainly, of that with the uh, thousands of Cubans uh, arriving on the uh, southern border of the United States, in addition to those that braved the Florida Straits. Let me bring another voice into our conversation here as we're talking about the Biden administration's changes to Cuba policy announced this week. Anudi Rodriguez yeah. is with us, editor for Venti Tracy Flagler here in South Florida. Welcome back to WLRN. What are your reactions to these uh, proposed to these changes announced this week? Thanks for the invite, Tom, and greetings to the audience and to Luis Zuniga. I, I agree with uh, Mr. Zuniga that this was a move from the Cuban government to open up the Nicaragua path to the United States, and most likely because they had a lot of pressure within Cuba. I, I definitely agree with that. And I also agree that on the protests in July last year, people were asking for freedom. <laughs> I believe that all freedom lovers Cubans, all dem- Democrat democracy lovers Cubans would like to get rid of Cuban totalitarianism. I think that's a fact. But there is, we also need to, be, I, I think we need to see on what are the US policy that will strengthen the Cuban people so they can fight back against the regime. Will the changes to the immigration, the reunification program do that in your estimation? I think that goes through humanitarian goals. I don't think that the family reunification uh, process will look at empower the people who is fighting within Cuba, but I think we can agree that families needs to be together. And we also have a problem within the United States. We have had several crises, migration crises from Cuba, and these visas come from agreements between the governments of Cuba and the United States decades ago to uh, avoid precisely the illegal migration to the United States. Let's talk about remittances uh, remittances here. Uh, uh, Luis, uh, the remittance policy that the Trump administration put in place was a hard and fast ceiling, a significant change compared to what the remittance allowances were uh, previous to uh, President Trump. Uh, there's some changes here that President Biden has, uh, has been pushing for. Uh, what, what do you suggest for the remittance policy into Cuba for uh, particularly the diaspora and the Miami community, the source of many of those remittances, to, uh, mm-hmm. to help Cuban family members, Cuban people and colleagues on the island? 
Yes, uh, indeed. Uh, it is well known that over 60 or 65% of the Cuban people eat and have a life out of those remittances. They depend uh, uh, fundamentally on those remittances. It's a fact. The Cuban regime is a, is a failed state. Uh, the, there is uh, poverty all over, misery, and scarcity, needs all over, because communism is a failure everywhere. Uh, in fact, the, the reason why the, the limit on remittances was implemented uh, before was that uh, most of those remittances were um, channeled through the military and the military were uh, forcing uh, recipients of those remittances to buy on their stores where uh, where prices were rice cut uh, and yeah. were so extremely uh, abusive uh, apologies for the interruption luis but are there policies that you think would provide assistance to uh, uh, cuban people without running the risk of being siphoned by the Cuban government. Yes, indeed. I, 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 I admire that the president took into account that they cannot be funneled through Finitex, which is the the, right. the, the financial enterprise of a, of a regime. That's that's a, to be praised, indeed, uh, from the administration. It's, uh, it's good to do that. Uh, as, as for the limit, uh, the Cuban with uh, $100 a, a month is enough for their needs. Uh, anything else might be misused or might uh, fall into the hands of a, of a regime through the high prices they charge. So you'd like to limit it at $100 per person in Cuba? For no, I don't. I don't I, that's uh, elastic. I am not uh, okay. adamant <laughs> on the extent of the amount to, to be sent. Indeed, uh, no. Understood. Uh, Gennady, how about this? How about uh, to ensure that U.S. policies have the intended impact on the island, particularly as it comes to helping the dire economic straits that uh, so many on the island find themselves in. Yes, Tom, it depends, you know, it depends on the implementation. Regarding remittances, I think there should be no limit because even if there are limits from the United States side, people still send those money with, you know, intermediate with third people and they pay a lot of money for that cash to reach their families. Mm -hmm. So they're going to be sending money regardless. And many times the people who charges them skyrocket, uh, you know, prices mm -hmm. for taking the money are most likely related to the regime. So I think it's a bad idea anyhow, just to limit remittances. And, you know, we have been trying all these sanctions for a lot of years, for 30 years, and People say, hey, Biden ask nothing in return. I disagree. The, the American people through the, the Helms-Burton Act, the American people has been making demands for the Cuban regime to for democracy, for you know, general elections, multi-parties, in, in, and it, the regime has not filled the need to make those changes. Yeah, the complaint though, Gennady, is that the Biden administration and previously the Obama administration uh, offered uh, offered branches to and, and instituted po significant policy changes, easing sanctions and easing relations without receiving something in return from the uh, from the communist government. I, I disagree. I disagree. I believe that the implementation of public internet came directly from uh, the Obama negotiations mm. and. We have protests last year because there was internet in the island. So it, it was a huge impact. However, what was important was to change the dynamic 
the United States was seen as the enemy and they blame everything that was going on within the island uh, on the United States. Right. But Obama came to be even more popular than Castro's hmm. in Cuba. I just talked to a Cuban yesterday and he said that if Obama had run for president in Cuba, most likely he, he will have, you know, he won that election. And, you know, stimulating. I can hear the critics state. already talk about whether or not that's a free and fair election on the island. First, you have to have well, the democratic I, institutions in place. But we got a lot to talk about. And one other significant piece, uh, gentlemen, of the changes that were announced this week uh, regard travel. Uh, of course, that was kind of the centerpiece of the Obama engagement uh, that was uh, really uh, limited and peeled back during the Trump administration. Tim, what were some of the changes here that the Biden administration wants to make? Well, th travel is also an economic issue yeah. oh, really, yeah. in, in this context. And the two big the two big changes were one, they would resume flights in from the U.S. into Cuba into cities other than just Havana. Uh, as you recall, the Trump administration had restricted things to just Havana. Now you can take flights from the U.S. into the back into the interior, uh, which is a lot of families here agree with because it was it's it's very hard to get around the interior yeah. of Cuba if you can only fly into Havana. The second big one was that they will they will resume group people-to-people -people exchange travel for educational and other purposes like that. Not individual, but right. group. But yet still a big classification of travel for potentially for Americans to visit. The right. Island. And that matters, as I said, economically, because yeah. you've got dollar-toting yeah. Americans yeah. coming in to help private businesses, in theory. Luis, uh, your response to this uh, restarting of flights from the United States into locations in Cuba other than Havana, do you think that will help spread some uh, some economic activity? No, I think that, that that's just for family visits, uh, what is benefiting, and I have no objection to that. That's a, that's a humanitarian, and I do not oppose any, any measure concerning the humanitarian uh, issue because that's a need for the Cuba. What I oppose is the exchange, again, the academic and visitors exchanges of groups that we have learned quite completely that those are tourism, hidden tourism, disguised tourism. It has been the history of all that. Mm -hmm. The same thing that happened with the with uh, cruise cruise ships. Cruise ships uh, were providing uh, 300 million to the regime, to the military organizations that control tourism, and the Cuban people got nothing in return. The the the, the cuenta propistas, the small uh, license holders in Cuba for services, they were as set aside from those opportunities. Uh, besides, uh, the Clinton administration implemented those people-to-people -people contact, and it was a failure. It's a, it's a failed experience that should not be repeated because it's used as a hidden way of tourism. Yeah, we should point out, of course, cruise ships are not part of the uh, announcement from the Biden administration. This is regarding air travel from the United States to uh, cities in Cuba other than Havana. Gennady, what do you make of, of this potential uh, easing of some, uh, some of the travel restrictions? I think, of course, it has political risk. But I prefer people and Americans going to Cuba, interacting with Cubans, and you know, try to bring good information to these people who are going to the island instead of having a North Korea just in the south of, of you know U.S. frontier. We we don't want either to have such an isolated country that even people in Cuba are having trouble to interact with, you know, democratic minds such as the United States. Finally, I'd like to hear from all three of you on this. Uh, what about political implications 
for President Biden. This announcement happening, as we as we noted, just days before the 120th anniversary of Cuban independence, but also happening here in a midterm election year. Uh, Luis, do you think there was any political uh, there will be any political implication or calculation involved? Oh, yes, uh, American uh, political calculation uh, is what I'm asking about. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Uh, because uh, most communities, Cuban Americans, uh, Venezuelan Americans, Nicaraguan Americans and all other uh, nationalities that are in the risk that their country go falls under communism, uh, they are they are angry with the measures that any measure that may ease the situation of a dictatorship. And, and they know that Cuba is the, the cancer. Cuba is the most is the responsible for all this spread of communism in, in, in the Americas. Uh, so uh, uh, I think that it will uh, hurt the the, uh, the Democrats in the next uh, elections in November. I think that it will hurt them. Gennady, what's, what's your analysis of the American political implications of some of these changes? Yeah, m- most likely, you know, um, yeah, Cubans, Cuban-American voters who do not, do not agree with any kind of reapproachment to Cuba, will vote and will punish in the elections to Democrats. But I think they have a broader problem. They have a, a, a deep immigration crisis with Cuba and they have to solve it anyhow. And that will, if that crisis continues deepening, that will compromise them with a broader electorate in the United States, not just the Cuban Americans. Also, there is, I have to say that even though there is a majority of Cuban Americans, about probably 60%, given last polls that I have seen that might disagree with this approach, there is also another minority of Cuban Americans, about probably 35 or 36, who does agree with this, what the president is doing. And for for them, it makes perfect sense to go back to Cuba and somehow trying to strengthen and give resources to the people and see if we can change that dynamic that have kept that totalitarianism for several decades in Cuba. Tim, when you have received some background briefings on these changes, politics come up at all? No, but the, the let's just say the sotto voce uh, implication here is I, I don't think you can discount the reality that the the Biden administration looks at Florida, particularly South Florida, and has decided that this is red now, not purple even. It's red. And I think they have all but written off, particularly South Florida, as as an electoral scene that they can really impact anymore. And so I think it it actually sort of frees them up to take decisions like they did this week. Tim Padgett is the America's editor here at WLRN. Luis Zuniga is a member of the Assembly of the Cuban Resistance. And Gonadi Rodriguez is editor for Bente Tracy Flagler. To all three of you, thanks for sharing your perspectives and reporting with us. Much appreciated. Thanks, Tom. Thank Thank you, Tom. Thank you. Still to come on our program here, the surprise $1 billion settlement in the making after the Surfside condominium collapse. That's next on The Roundup. Welcome back to the South Florida Roundup here on WLRN. I'm Tom Hudson. Thanks for listening. For the families of the victims of Surfside, a proposed settlement has been reached, almost $1 billion. If approved, it would make the class action lawsuit the second largest settlement in state history. The judge overseeing the litigation wants people to receive their money by September. Miami-Dade County uh, Circuit Court Judge Michael Hansman says his decision on what they each will get will be final. 
I'm not having a situation where one person who's dissatisfied with their award can appeal and tie up every victim's money for a year or two. That's not happening. My decision on the amount of the claim is the end of the road. The road, though, is not clear just yet. On Tuesday, the beachfront property is due to be auctioned off. One of the defendants in this lawsuit, the city of Surfside, okayed its portion of the proposed settlement. The town's insurance company will pay $2 million to families and victims. Surfside Mayor Shlomo Danzinger said this on Monday. I appreciate this coming and the town being preemptive and doing what we can to help the families, even though money will never make up for what they've lost. In the aftermath of this settlement for the families, questions still remain, certainly. What has changed about building safety, building codes and laws? What have they been put in place and building inspections? 800-743-WLRN, if you'd like to join our conversation here on this Friday on the South Florida Roundup, 800-743-9576. WLRN reporter Veronica Zaragovia is with us now, who has been uh, on this story since that awful, awful day last summer in the early morning hours of the collapse of the Champlain Towers South. Veronica, where is the money for this proposed $1 billion settlement coming from? Well, Tom, remember that plaintiffs in this class action lawsuit blamed the development of a luxury tower next door to the former Champlain Towers South as having destabilized an already poorly constructed and maintained building. So the settlement comes from the insurer's Um, of a security company for Champlain South, the developers of the condo building next door, engineers, architects, a law firm that represented the Champlain South Condo Association. And this doesn't mean that any of these have admitted guilt. Mm -hmm. Um, In fact, the owners and insurers of 87 Park, the building next door, deny any responsibility. So what's next in the settlement process? It is just proposed now, and the the tabulation is close to a billion dollars, and some of the attorneys involved think it will exceed a billion dollars by the time the ink is dried on what the judge will have in front of him. Right. Well, now, actually, the process is being hammered out and will be announced Tuesday in court because they're um, working on the forum that families of the victims will fill out and they will receive time in court to explain the value of their family members. And this is already going to be a very difficult process because they, you know, will not all get the same amount of money and they have to argue, you know, what's, uh, who, who, you know, what is the value of a human life? And um, that I'm hearing from family members that that's already causing them a lot of anguish. Yeah, excruciating, uh, trauma-filled uh, uh, yes. thought process there. Kurt Anderson is uh, joining our conversation. Kurt's a longtime reporter for the Associated Press here in South Florida. Kurt, welcome back to WLRN. Thanks for sharing some of your reporting with us. Yeah, thanks, Tom. Thanks for having me. Can you hear me good? But loud and clear, yeah. What was the, judge's, ju- what was the judge's reaction to learning about the, the this settlement? He was amazed, actually, at how quickly this has happened. You know, it's it's not been a year yet since the uh, collapse happened on June 24th, as you pointed out. And yet here we have a billion dollars, and it will probably be more than that uh, when it's all said and done uh, on the table for the, the, the people who lost loved ones. Uh, and and um, he, he was he was he was surprised, but not completely because they really have been, it's really been a collaborative effort amongst these lawyers, uh, you know, who often are, you know, castigated as sort of, uh, 
you know, vultures and so mm -hmm. forth. But th that has not been the case in this in this whole thing. Everyone has really tried to work together to make something work. The judge has said he wants the money paid out by September. Uh, what what could affect that kind of accelerated timeline? Well, the, the as uh, Veronica pointed out, uh, Tuesday is going to be a big day. <clears throat> there, there's going to be some uh, action on the forms that people have to fill out. Uh, and also, the uh, that day is going to be the auction of the land, uh, mm. which uh, you know where it's which is uh, currently the offer is 120 million dollars on the table for that land, and um, it, there may be other offers. But so once that all kind of happens, uh, I think everything will kind of fall into place. There there are, however, uh, and and I'm sure uh, Veronica and others have, have told you this. It's there are a lot of people who are not happy with everything, you know, and so they'll get their day to be able to say what they want to say uh, and, and perhaps change the outcome. So it might take a little longer, but uh, Judge Hansman has, has made it very clear he wants everything done by September so we don't have this lingering for two or three years. Uh, Kurt, both you and Veronica have mentioned these forms. Uh, Veronica, it, it it sounds, frankly, so bureaucratic, right? Talking about this unimaginable scale of human tragedy, and trying to put an economic settlement uh, to together, that there there's paperwork involved. I mean, it's just a reality, certainly. But what do we know? What do you what have you learned already about this process uh, that uh, that victims' families? Uh, are likely to have to uh, have to go through as the settlement uh, deliberations continue. Yeah, well, um, part of it, they'll need to put the age of the loved one, what kind of work they had do had done. Um, and that will, I mean, uh, lawyers have explained to me that, for instance, uh, somebody who was the primary breadwinner, will that family of that victim will likely receive more than a retiree who was in their 90s. Um, this is just how these things play out in court. And some are arguing for making it. It should actually, uh, there should be a consideration of dividing it equally among everyone to avoid this kind of uh, additional bureaucracy, you know, of, of, of starting to list everything. There's also going to be some survivors who will claim that they may have experienced post-traumatic stress disorder, mm -hmm. which is very uh, complicated in Florida law to get compensated for. But what the judge has said is that maybe what they'll do is that those claimants will agree to take a certain amount of money that could go towards therapy, and then they their claims process would end there. So there's still a lot to be determined and um, how this is going to you know, unfold. Yeah, Kurt, what may, is, may, yeah, go ahead, Kurt. Well, may, may, may I just jump in? You know, um, this, this this has happened before. And after the 9-11 uh, tragedy, of course, uh, Ken Feinberg, who, who's, you know, well-known, had to, to do this very same thing. Like, uh, just as Veronica said, what is the CEO's life worth versus a janitor? Uh, everyone is a valuable life. However, there, there are different uh, places uh, you have to go with that. And uh, Ken Feinberg uh, was a lawyer who uh, was appointed to do this for the 9-11 tragedy, which was made into a movie called Worth. Mm -hmm. right. uh, and, um, you know, it, it's, it's, it's not easy. It, but, but, but there is some 
logic to it, you know, it, sadly, uh, you know, that, that some people's earning power or what they, uh, let's say you're a 50 year old CEO of a company, you die and you're a 50 year old janitor is different. And that's what they have to sort out. Veronica, how, how, how do the families think about that? Uh, you know, as, as Kurt uh, has pointed out, and I know you're reporting on uh, Feinberg did this around the 9-11 victims funds. I think he was involved in the Boston Marathon bombing uh, victim settlement. As right. Well. Uh, and, and the Pulse and in the, Orlando. The Pulse nightclub uh, shooting. Yeah, there, there is certainly a social science and an economic science, uh, tragic as it may be, a uh, body of work that has developed uh, over the past many years around situations that uh, you have these mass casualty tragic events. Yeah, I'm hearing a, a wide range of reactions. There's one, um, the the family, uh, the last victim who was identified as Sel Hedea feel like at least just the end, that this court process is coming to an end, just that will be major relief because it's a constant opening of the wound every time there's some update with the court process. Um, there are Pablo Langesfeld is a very outspoken father of Nicole Langesfeld who, who died and he won't speak about the money as closure. He wants to know why the building collapsed and that's what his message is and that Florida should pass legislation to make sure this doesn't happen again. And I spoke yesterday with Pablo Rodriguez, who lost his mother and his grandmother. And, and he thinks that this whole situation is quite unfair to, to start um, saying that his mother and grandmother's lives weren't as valuable um, as uh, um, either a CEO and that maybe a janitor shouldn't be valued less either. So, right. yeah. Very tough. And, and, and Kurt, uh, the as this process continues in the courtroom, uh, this is a civil lawsuit. This is, and as Veronica's reporting has pointed out in our conversation, this is not about allocating uh, uh, responsibility or blame for the collapse itself, but rather the financial repercussions from that collapse. How, how important is that for those involved to get to a point where there is clarity uh, and some type of judgment regarding cause? Yeah, well, that's a very good question. And you know, a, a lot of this this whole thing with the regarding the settlements is just a, a way to sort of say, okay, we're, we're just gonna we're gonna we'll spend this money and just just leave us alone uh, when there's blame to come later. That is going to take some time. The uh, National Institute of Standards and Technology (NIST) is the lead agency on this. They're very deliberate and slow. I'll be honest. Mm -hmm. uh, it may be another year maybe another year after that before we really understand like what actually caused this to happen. Hmm. Uh, was it the soil? Was it uh, you know, climate change? Was it shoddy construction? Was it the, the, the build, big building next door, which we mentioned earlier? All of that has yet to be decided. And I, I, I understand, you know, pe people would like to know, especially around this whole state where we have a lot of buildings just like this, uh, what actually happened and we don't know that yet and it's going to be a while yeah yeah and we're seeing responses already right boca raton uh, uh quite a, several months ago uh approved its first city required inspection for uh buildings of a certain age and just this week released the first 14 buildings it will inspect under law has, has identified more than 100 miami-dade county 
commissioners are discussing changing the 40-year inspection regulation, of which Champlain Towers was undergoing at the time, reducing that to a 30-year uh, mandatory inspection. Right. Yeah. Go ahead. Oh, sorry. Well, um, you know, as Kurt was saying, just to say that Surfside has actually approved a 30-year inspection ahead of what Miami-Dade County will do. And Miami-Dade County, remember that uh, it inspected more than 500 buildings that were approaching that 40-year deadline. And we know of at least two that were evacuated recently. And I'm hearing that this is going to lead other condo associations to start considering should they sell their building? Because remember that at the time of the collapse, the condo unit owners were facing huge assessment fees to you know, to finish right. that 40 right. year inspection process. So maybe they'll say, let's just sell this and put a new building up. Yeah. Kurt. Well, you know, it, it's, um, that's right. It, it's, it's a very, uh, well, let me back up. One of the things that d- did not happen this year, uh, was in the legislature in Tallahassee. Uh, there were, there were several bills to, to address this situation and try to make a sort of a standard, um, method of, right. of dealing with these and nothing happened yeah and so you know so so we're kind of still left with the patchwork each county each city has to kind of do this on their own it, you know it's it's it, it may not work out that well and we, this may happen again i mean you know it's it's um sadly mm-hmm. I'm just... kurt anderson uh, longtime south florida reporter for the associated press kurt great to have you on the program thanks for sharing all your reporting and knowledge with us appreciate it very much tom Veronica Zaragovia, WLRN reporter, also on the Surfside story. Veronica, as always, thanks for sharing your reporting with us here on the South Florida Roundup. Thanks so much, Tom. Still to come on our program, we will talk about the next phase in the Parkland shooting death penalty jury selection. That second phase got underway this week. More to come. Welcome back to the South Florida Roundup on WLRN. I'm Tom Hudson. Thanks again for listening. The effort to find people to decide if Nicholas Cruz lives or dies entered a new stage this week in Broward County. Jury selection in the death penalty trial of the Parkland shooter began its second phase on Monday. Gerard Albert III is WLRN's Broward County reporter. Gerard, thanks again for coming in for the South Florida Roundup. What is the second phase of jury selection? The second phase is bringing back everyone who made it through the first round, which was all about scheduling conflicts. Can you handle taking off work for six months? And now the jurors are being questioned uh, mostly about their feelings on the death penalty. So how many jurors, potential jurors, are part of this phase of jury selection? There's just under 400 jurors right now. The judge is trying to whittle that down to 150 jurors for the final round of jury selection. And so set the stage for us this week as these 400 jurors are now part of this second phase. Uh, On Monday, what was jury selection like? How did the lawyers go about questioning these jurors? Sure. On Monday, like many things with this trial, it was learning by doing. Monday, 40 jurors were called back. And the lawyers questioned them one at a time. And that started at 9.30. By around 1.30, we were through four jurors. Four of the 400 potential jurors. Yes. 
40 were called back that day. The judge at lunch realized this is not going to work. We need to start calling more people in at a time. So she started calling six jurors in at a time to be questioned. And that's going to continue like that throughout jury selection. What types of questions are the jurors asked? You mentioned they're being asked about their feelings of the death penalty. Uh, What else are they asked about? So the state starts it off and the state's questioning has all been along the lines of, can you listen to both sides of an argument? And will you, if you are convinced, will you vote for the death penalty? The defense has been a little bit, their, their questioning has been a little bit longer, a little bit more philosophical at times, but it, still it's, it's, it's what is your likelihood? Do you believe in the death penalty? And a lot of people wrote on their questionnaires, I'm unsure about the death penalty. Um, you know, it's part of the law, so I guess I'm okay with it. And the defense really tries to rehabilitate a lot of the jurors who are saying, I don't know much about it. I, I don't like it, but it's the law. What do you mean by rehabilitate a juror? I'll give an example. There was a juror on the first day. I think she was the first juror to go. She was one of those, I wasn't too sure about the death penalty. It's the law, so I'll do it. And the defense lawyer asked, here's a philosophical one. If you had an island and you were in total control of your island, would you have the death penalty on that island? And she said no. Hmm. The follow-up to that was, oh, okay. But right now, where we are in reality, the law is that there is a death penalty. If you were convinced by the lawyers, could you rule for the death penalty? And she said yes. This is the type of juror that the defense is really looking for. Someone who maybe for religious reasons or for philosophical reasons does not really believe in the death penalty, but will say that they will follow the law. And how about the kind of jurors that the state, the prosecutors have in mind? It's almost the exact opposite. Um, You know, someone that is okay with the death penalty, someone that believes that, you know, as we heard it in court this week, an eye for an eye. Mm -hmm. Um, But again, we'll listen to both sides. And if they are convinced, we'll vote for the death penalty. What's the environment and the atmosphere been like during the second phase of jury selection? How does it compare to what that first phase was like? The first phase, it started off a little lighter than you'd expect for this type of trial. But as the logistical problems kept on coming, it got more and more frustrating. And Monday was probably the most frustrating day that anyone in that courtroom has seen. Just the hours going by as one juror goes so slowly, so slowly, and realizing this is going to bleed into next year if it goes on like this. So it's it's a it's a frustrating atmosphere. The judge is sitting there leaned back in her chair by the end of of the day exhausted. I think there was probably half a dozen objections within the first 30 minutes of questioning, mostly from the state about the defense's questioning. You see each day that they come back, they've clearly talked some things out and and it runs a little bit more smooth, but it's a frustrating, frustrating process. Any early indications as to trial strategy from either side? Well, in death penalty sentencing trials, you have aggravating factors and mitigating circumstances. To go through them real quick, the state's going to be arguing aggravating factors. So 
how heinous the crime was. It was pre-planned. It was cruel and cold and calculated. The defense is going to argue what's called mitigating circumstances, which is, okay, Nicholas Cruz had psychological issues. He had issues in his childhood. He had issues at school. The state's going to argue the premeditated uh, nature of the crime, the heinousness of the crime, the, 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 the cruelness of it, the, the fact that he put so many lives in danger. And the defense is going to argue that he had a lot of psychological issues, early childhood issues as well, and issues in school. Mm-hmm. There have been several mass shootings in the United States since jury selection began, including the killing of 10 people in Buffalo, New York, in a grocery store just last Saturday. Have those shootings been referred to in court? And if so, how? They've come up in the lawyer's questioning just a bit. Uh, The state starts off every line of questioning with first-degree murder does not automatically equate to a death sentence whether the person kills one person or a thousand people. And so as they get deeper into questioning and their feelings about, okay, you believe in the death penalty in some circumstances, what are those circumstances? Does it have to do with the age of the victims? Does it have to do with the number of the victims? And so the mass shootings have come up. What's on tap for next week? Next week is more of round two of jury selection. It is uh, six jurors at a time coming in from a group of about 40 that are called back and being questioned about their feelings on the death penalty. Gerard Albert III, WLRN's Broward County reporter. Gerard, thanks for sharing your reporting with us. Of course. Thank you. And finally on the roundup this week, the ice. They did it! For the first time in 26 years, the Panthers advance in the Stanley Cup playoffs. Or the hardwood. And the Miami Heat for the second time in the last three years going to the Eastern Conference Finals. Both the Miami Heat and the Florida Panthers remain in the hunt for their championships. You may find they're competing for your attention as well. The Heat are tied in the Eastern Conference Finals against the Boston Celtics, one game apiece. The Panthers have lost two in a row to the Tampa Bay Lightning in the Atlantic Division playoff series. And they are playing their games sometimes on the same days. On Monday, the puck drops for the Panthers at 7 o'clock, tip-off for the Heat just 90 minutes later. So basketball and hockey fans, you may have to share your screens. Pucks and buckets mix when it's playoff season in South Florida, after all. That'll do it for the South Florida Roundup this week. It is produced by Natu Tue. Our engagement editor is Katie Cohn. Our news director, Terrence Shepard. Alicia Zuckerman is the editorial director. Jessica Bakeman is the senior editor of news. The Director of Radio Operations and the program's technical supervisor is Peter J. Mertz. Richard Ives answers the phones. I'm Tom Hudson. Thanks for calling, listening, and supporting public radio. This program is made possible by Willie the Bee Man, Bee Removal Specialist. WLRN Public Media.